Jingophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome to another exciting installment of Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. I'm Kaylee McMahon, and today we continue our discussion of the wonderful world of Monty Python by discussing season two of Monty Python's Flying Circus. I think that I was inspired to sound extra flamboyant when I said hello because I'm currently wearing a dress over a t-shirt that says I am a slut and I'm just imagining I'm Terry Jones. (laughs) Okay, wait, let's just dive right in. Season two, there's a lot of really good stuff in here, but I do think that shows that go on a little bit longer can have the tendency to repeat themselves. And when something's whole brand is that they're new and exciting and innovating, then it's hard to sustain that. And that's something that we had talked about in some of the shows that we discussed in season one of this podcast. Faulty Towers stopped after 12, Young Ones stopped after 12. And these seasons of Monty Python's Flying Circus are pretty long for British television. So Already just within season one, they did so much stuff and created so much content that that was longer than all of Faulty Towers or the Young Ones put together. And like I said, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but you can sort of see that it's a little bit... I don't want to be too hard on it and say that they're starting to repeat themselves, but around the end of this season was when John Cleese was starting to feel a little bit tired of it, and he didn't actually want to do season three He did do season three, but then he quit before season four, which we'll talk about in next week's episode. Plus, dude, I think it bears mentioning that you and I are watching this in a way that the show was never meant to be seen. I was just about to say, (laughs) even just binging it in a week like responsible adults would have been a lot. But we both, through procrastination and, and busyness and life stuff, we both watched the whole season within like the last 24 to 48 hours. But the reason that I brought up the the repetition thing is that one of my favorite things that is very much a repetition of, or really more of an amalgamation of two different sketch ideas from season one, but I think it's so fucking good that I have no problem with it, is Terry Jones coming back for his second striptease. It's a perfect combination of the man trying to change his bathing suit at the beach, and then also that sketch that we discussed with Carol Cleveland having the monologue about, what it was, it 18th century legislation while, uh, or, you know, lip syncing to it while John Cleese was, was saying it. And in this case, we have Terry Jones delivering a very boring lecture about agriculture or some such while doing another hilarious striptease that's actually, I think, maybe even funnier than the first. Like, in this case, I'm like, the the sequel tops the original. I I let it pass. A plus. (laughs) I don't know if the sequel tops the original, but I'm going to give it, like, I'm going to give it bonus points for the pasties. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's what I meant by... Sorry, not the the tassels. Yeah, he had the the tassels on at the end. And I loved that since he does not have protruding breasts, he had to, like hold his own chest and sort of help swing them around in order to make the tassels do it. It's very, very funny, yeah. Okay, Terry Jones is handsome. Can, can we just say, like, look, I do not think he's hotter than Rowan Atkins. Not by... Not by fucking miles! He's not... He doesn't hold a candle to Rowan Atkinson, but... He has, he has. <laughs> I did not expect this argument to come up. Very nice teeth. He does. He's got a lovely and, smile. And hair and eyes. It is a very nice yeah, smile. And features. I feel. You know, there's. Oh, yes. He has two legs and two arms. But, you, you know, I just look at him and it's like, I feel like because he's short and like does a lot of 
weirder things. <laughs> I also kind of feel a strange um, camaraderie with him. I kind of feel like I could easily be the Terry Jones of a comedy troupe. Because I would probably be the shortest. <laughs> <laughs> that's, really, that's really adorable, Stephanie. Anyway, I think that probably the most iconic sketches that season two boasts are obviously the Spanish Inquisition. Yes. The Ministry of Silly Walks. And uh, spam. Yes, those are all great, and they were also except I don't I don't actually know about silly walks, but I know that the other two were definitely part of the Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time computer game. That's surprising that silly walks wouldn't be because I feel like that's on the most t-shirts and mugs. Oh, I and have stuff. a poster. Yeah. You know what's really sad is that John Cleese hates that sketch. Really? I think it's because you know walking around, he was always the one who would get recognized most because you know he's he's very tall he sticks out like a sore thumb in a crowd and so you know people would just go up to him on the street and be like hey John do your silly walk and I'm sure that that would really wear thin and great on anyone's patience but but then to resent the original sketch it's so it's so fucking funny and I feel like an idiot talking about the silly walk because this is a you know audio <laughs> medium like we can't share it with you guys but obviously anyone who's listening you know what the silly walk looks like just just take a second and picture it in your head and smile maybe laugh out loud not judging you it's it's earned it's a really fucking funny image well then i'm wondering if he hated it by the time that they did the germans episode of faulty towers because he does a silly walk in it that kind of pays homage right he does a silly walk but not the silly walk okay it's like the store brand silly walk yeah it's generic silly walk I was happy to see in the silly walk that they let a lady come in and have a silly walk and a line. I was going to say, yeah, we talked a lot about the use of women in our first Flying Circus episode last week. And I feel like in some ways they made steps forward and steps backward within this same thing. And yeah, that was something that I noticed was that uh, Carol Cleveland was allowed to do more things where she was actually funny and not just a sex object. Like... There is a courtroom scene where there is another woman brought in to be a random sex object, like in a bikini. But Carol gets to be one of the barristers up with John Cleese, which is kind of cool. And then also there's that really funny moment where they do A Tale of Two Cities adapted for parrots. She does get to show more of her comedy chops as opposed to just being there to be the boobs. But then again, we also see more of her boobs than we've ever seen. So it's kind of like... We do see more of her boobs. And I remember reading, and I, I'm thinking it's when she finally runs topless on the beach mm-hmm. that she had to say, I'm not going to show these puppies. You can shoot them from behind. Yeah, we got, we got a little not, side boob, but, uh, but not, yeah. I'm not going to show these babies. Yeah. Which makes makes them all the more mysterious and wonderful. <laughs> I think that it was you who told me about an Isla Fisher line about her nude scene in Wedding Crashers that I think they used yes, a double for. They did. But yeah, but it was about, you know, she shouldn't show her boobs. You shouldn't see her naked because once you do, she's not a funny character. She's an object. And exactly. it's true. But, you know, of course they get in their little, you know... I, I mean, all weekend I've definitely been looking like Carol Cleveland stripping down to my garter and, and whatever in the window while saying it's so hot in here. <laughs> you know, they they still show her stripping and stuff. But yeah, no, I, I too noticed that she was doing more. Yeah, she had more to do. And they also brought in other women to not just be sex objects. Like there is an older woman in the second appearance of the Spanish Inquisition when she's handing the photos. Like the, the woman who gets tortured with you know the cushions and the comfy chair Mm -hmm. is a real old woman it's not just one of them in a wig which is kind of nice yeah still the straight man still not very much for them to do but at least she's not being sexualized yeah 
baby yeah. sticks, guys. Good on you. <laughs> there were some good um, drag moments in this season as well. Are you thinking of John Cleese? I was thinking about the sketch about how everybody has a poet in their house oh. and how, yes. like, um, Michael Palin is sort of like the gas man, but he says, I've, I've come to read your poet. And Terry Jones is the housewife who answers the door in, in her nightgown and she kind of just starts touching her hair and being a little bit flirtatious. And then she finally comes on to the poet reader man really, really hard. And that cracked me up because it wasn't so much what Terry Jones was saying when the housewife finally pins Michael Palin to the couch and is screaming in his face <laughs> saying, take me now sort of things. I was just imagining being Michael Palin. And hey, what, of course what you it, were, because you want to <laughs> Terry Jones. <laughs> Whereas I was imagining being Terry Jones in that situation. So, Oh, this is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, I was just thinking about getting to do something like this with your friends. Oh, and yeah. it, and it, it kind of took me back to every comedy sports scene or every play production where like we weren't supposed to laugh and you're up there just with your goofy friend and oh, yeah. you're you're in on a joke nobody else is in on. Like I just I was trying to look at Michael Palin's face to see if he was breaking. It didn't look like he was. What a professional. What a professional. I, this is a show I would love to see a blooper reel of. Jesus Christ, fuck me, yes. <laughs> Those were two separate thoughts. No, I'm not saying that Jesus Christ is do you do you think there's got to be some kind of church of wanting to fuck? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like when everyone's standing up and screaming about Jesus, aren't they kind of pretty much more or less saying like, "Give it to me now, Jesus," like in that South Park episode? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Bloopers. Oh that would be that would be hilarious. But um, did you know that? The BBC were originally going to just destroy the tapes. So the BBC didn't, they weren't really very forward thinking or, or they didn't have posterity in mind when they were airing their shows. So there is a sketch show called Not Only But Also starring Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Have you ever seen or heard of that? No. My parents got a tape for us that was called The Best of What's Left of Not Only But Also. And the reason it's what's left of is once they had been broadcast, they recorded over them to save money on the actual tapes. Mm. So the reason that we have access to Monty Python is because Terry Jones had the good foresight to purchase those tapes from the BBC so that they didn't just destroy and recycle them. Can you imagine Whoa. if the rest of the world never got to see this, if this was never aired in the in America, if it was never released on VHS and DVD and Netflix? Like, what a crazy phenomenon to just have stifled and ended there. That's nuts. I know, it's crazy. So that's why, like, of, of course there's no bloopers because they didn't have the forethought to, you know, to do that. But yeah, oh, I would love to see rehearsal footage or just any sort of wacky hijinks going on behind the scenes, yeah. Wacky hijinks or if there were any, like, moments of them not in a character where they're just kind of bummed out and tired and they have to turn it on to be <laughs> like, oh, my <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, oh, but the drag, the thing that I was talking about is in the, the Piranha Brothers sketch that takes up about the second half of the first episode of season two is when John is, like, kind of the first attempt at a sexy woman like yes. usually they're, they're kind of old and matronly but he's got that big huge red wig and 
talking about <laughs> about Dinsdale and like, he knew how to treat a female impersonator. <laughs> like That was funny. <laughs> that was really, really funny. I really liked that sketch, actually. I did too, yeah. It sort of reminded me of something that I said last week about John Cleese is the deadpan newscaster who's being kidnapped and how it sort of relates to what's going on now. I think that what's great about really good sketches that it can be sort of like a Rorschach test and like whatever you see in it, like you will find some sort of cultural or, or political relevance in, in the time that you're living in, no matter when it was created. Sure. And like there's that one clip when uh, Eric Idle is being interviewed about the Piranha Brothers and say like, oh, didn't didn't he nail your head to the table? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, well, yes, he did. But And he keeps sort of making excuses for him. And I just thought... This is like every fucking white male terrorist who shoots up a public place. It's, oh, he was always so quiet and he was a good student and he was such a good athlete. Oh, he was a hopeless romantic who happened to stalk women and beat them. Making excuse after excuse after excuse and giving the benefit of the doubt to these people who do really horrible things. It's just, it really struck me as like, oh, this is how the news treats every single you know, misunderstood, loner, outcast. No one saw this coming. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> right? Did you think of that too? I didn't. Good one. And it's it's funny because then he says, uh, and didn't he also nail your wife's head to the table? And it pans over to a Graham Chapman in drag with a giant t- table on top of his head and a giant nail. And she's, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a confession. I don't believe I'd ever seen the spam sketch. Girl! My father had one of their records. So I had I'd heard a recording of it over and over and over and over again. We loved it so much. So you didn't know that there were like Vikings and stuff? I, I never knew who was singing spam, 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 spam. It was funny anyway. Like I absolutely loved it. And I'm kind of glad that I had that experience because not only did it get to be fresh 25 years later, but it does kind of say a lot about the sketch for, again, as silly and childish as it is. It's a restaurant that serves a lot of spam and there's Vikings. Mm -hmm. Got it. Not complicated. But I do think it speaks to the polarity of the material that you could take away all of the visual elements and it was still great. Well, there's egg and bacon, uh, egg, sausage and bacon, egg and spam. Egg, bacon, and spam. Egg, bacon, sausage, and spam. Spam, bacon, sausage, and spam. Spam, egg, spam, spam, bacon, and spam. Spam, 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 egg, and spam. Spam, 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 bacon, spam, 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 and spam. Oh, lobster, thermidor, crevettes with mayonnaise sauce, garnish with truffle pate, brandy, and a pie get up top and spam. And it was anything without spam in it. Well, spam, egg, sausage, and spam. It's not got much spam in it. I don't want any spam. Why can't she have egg, bacon, spam, and sausage? That's got spam in it. Not as much as spam, egg, sausage, and spam. Look, could I have egg, bacon, spam, and sausage without the spam? Yeah. What do you mean? Uh, I don't like spam. Spam, 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 to say, oh, well, you didn't know it was Vikings? It's like, well, what kind of explanation is that? Why were there Vikings <laughs> yeah. in the diner that doesn't <laughs> No, that's very true. Or really how they clarify sort of anything. down into their chairs at the, at the top of the sketch for no reason at all. <laughs> I loved that. That was great. 
Yeah. It's just a wonderful little touch. It's like what we were talking about with the Faulty Towers episodes, how they would be on the radio. And yes, Wenwell would do the little narrations to supply the important visual information, but then there's just these little tiny sight gags that are not at all necessary, but just a fun little bonus for yeah. those of us lucky enough to see them. <laughs> the same could not be said for the Silly Walk sketch. No, um, that that wouldn't be very good. But I think that they could successfully do a sketch about an audio version of the Silly Walk sketch. <laughs> I, I could imagine that. Speaking of the Silly Walk sketch, we mentioned in last season how all of the episodes would sort of revolve around a certain motif or theme that would kind of make them make holistic sense. Like, there's just a lot of pigs or sheep or, and now for something completely different and, and stuff like that. And in this case, the whole season sort of feels like it's more connected. There's Michael Palin, who is in the woods as a cardinal, who says, oh, I'm not in this show. I'm not until show eight or whatever. And then it comes <laughs> back later. And there are, like, recurring characters, but they're not recurring characters in a sketch show where it's like... Oh, we all know this person and what their shtick is. But like Arthur Pewty from the marriage counselor sketch is the one who meets John Cleese's minister of silly walks and proposes the very lame silly walk. True. And we see the nudge nudge guy show up again in this season. Just little tiny hints that are like this. These are all of the same world. Another really great example in, in that same silly walk episode. They'll just sort of wander back to earlier sketches but not actually go back into them, just sort of pass by them. Like there's the line of all of the gas cooker salesmen winding all the way out the door and down the road. They'll keep coming back or there will be the, the Minister of Silly Walks will come into and be in the background, make a sort of Canadian cross in another sketch. It's all just it's like when you read those conspiracy theories about like how all of the Disney movies or all of the Pixar movies are actually part of the same universe. It's kind of like that, like both within the episode and also within the season. It's like, oh, this just all just kind of takes place in this weird world it's not so much like and here's a five minute thing that's completely done and we're never going to see it again you don't know when something else is going to pop up true like the spanish inquisition <laughs> which is great because what's so brilliant what's so brilliant about that sketch is that i haven't seen this again since i was maybe 13 and i wasn't expecting the spanish inquisition <laughs> what's so great is that they, they come there's the first time i was like oh shit oh i know what's coming and then the second time that they come up when carol cleveland is ripping up the photos of uncle ted yes you don't really see it coming and then at the end when you finally do think oh oh i see what they're gonna have to bring them back and then nobody expects the spanish inquisition and then when they do expect them then they're late and they don't come and it's the perfect subversion of our expectations oh well well played, fellas. That's pretty genius. Yeah, that's a great episode. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Our chief weapon is surprise. Surprise and fear. Fear and surprise. Our two weapons are fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency. Our three weapons are fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Our four. No. <laughs> Amongst our weapons. Amongst our weaponry are such elements as fear. I'll come in again. I'm going to share a quote from Michael Palin about that sketch. When Michael Palin is asked how he gets his ideas, he explains that he sits with a piece of paper and lets something come into his head. Quote, there's nothing odd about that. Sometimes in the morning when I'm half awake or just when I'm about to go to sleep, all sorts of strange thoughts will come into my mind. There are moments when the mind drifts and that's what happened with the Spanish Inquisition. There was all this stuff about trouble at the mill. All I came in here to tell you was that there was trouble at the mill. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. I wrote that line just as it was, and I thought, great, 
what we must do here is bring the Spanish Inquisition into it. So the door opens and in come these people saying nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's really how it was written. It was just stream of consciousness. That's fascinating to me that that actually grew out of the setup. Like you would think that the meat and potatoes is the Spanish Inquisition, but it really was just... Like, I didn't expect the writing of it and the discovery of it to be as stream of consciousness as that. Right. I wonder where that sketch was going in the first place. I love that they didn't seem to know either. Yeah. That's what's so cool is that, you know, a lot of writing advice that you get is like, begin with the end in mind, you know, and then work backwards. Like, if you're writing a a mystery or a thriller or a punchline or something... And, and I kind of love that, I mean, I think that it, with this show, you can really tell that they didn't always know where they were going. Case in point, they will frequently just abandon sketches or they will sort of fluidly morph into other things. But I think that that's what makes it so unexpected is that even they don't know where they're going. So we can't get out in front of them either. This is actually something that I know we're going to bring up when we talk about one of our favorite shows, Inside Number 9. The writers of that have also said that they start writing before they know how it's going to end because mm-hmm. most of those episodes will have some sort of a twist. And it's not to say that that's a gimmick or that every show has to have one, but you can go sort of more surprising and unexpected places when you surprise yourself in the writing. Yeah. And so I was really fascinated to learn that, that the mill thing wasn't just a setup for an idea that they already had. That's really cool. I I understand the advice that says you don't have to start at the beginning, mm-hmm. but I also am weary of any, no, you absolutely must, you know, have the end in mind. You absolutely must never have a a narration, you know, never this, never that, save the cat. I'm just kind of like, yeah, but really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've written three books, three, you know, unpublished, unrepresented books, but three, I think, pretty good books without <laughs> having any fucking idea where I was going. I just started writing and then... That makes it kind of more organic and realistic when things are just sort of allowed to evolve on their own. Yeah. You know, realistic, much like Monty Python sketches. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of, um, maybe you'd be able to think of examples in in season one. None come to my mind at the moment, but I kind of feel like there are a little bit more gay jokes in season two. Oh, yeah. And they're not necessarily hateful, but I kind of feel like they're having a lot more fun portraying gay men. And I think that for me, my favorite one is the one that actually involves the gay cast member. I love when Graham Chapman is wearing the giant fake nose. He's got this like giant, clearly very fake, like foot long nose on. And he's consulting with John Cleese, who's a plastic surgeon, and he wants a nose job. And then John Cleese just reaches over and pulls the nose off. And Graham Chapman says, well, I still want the surgery. And John Cleese is like, well, I'm not going to give it to you, silly man. And Graham Chapman says, no, no, I want the surgery. And John Cleese says, well, I'll give you the surgery if you come away with me on a camping weekend. (laughs) But then Graham Chapman looks at the camera and goes, he asked me, he asked me. And then they're skipping through the woods. (laughs) pretty adorable. I loved that one. I will say I can understand how this could be offensive or homophobic, but God, I love the infantry that does. First of all, the display of the temper. Attention! My goodness me! And next, the men of the second armored division regale us with their famous close order swanning about. Squad! Camp it up! Who get her? Whoops! I've got your numbers that you couldn't afford me, dear. Two, three. I'll scratch your eyes out. Don't come the bigger dear bit with us, dear. We all know 
Now, astute listeners may have noticed that there was no laughter in the second half of that clip, and that's because I had to be sneaky and use the version that they did for now for something completely different, because the laughter in the original Flying Circus version of the sketch is so loud as to render the clip completely unintelligible without the visuals. And uh, that makes sense, because it's really funny. I think because it subverts our expectations and because of like the army being such a you know traditionally masculine and butch thing you're just really not expecting it and the fact that they're all doing it in sync and it's choreographed and it's like this this very official thing like it doesn't feel that mean-spirited but I mean again I I'm not a gay man so I can't speak to that it reminds me of that scene in Blazing Saddles though when they burst through the wall and there's there's the gay chorus line, but aren't they kind of dressed as sailors or something? Not that not that sailors aren't way more inherently gay than soldiers. Oh my god. <laughs> I, you, there's no way that you saw the Tonys this year. But <laughs> um. but, but then we had we also had Eric Idle and was it Michael Palin being yeah, the gay Michael judges? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and they're coming out from from the courtroom and they're just gossiping about what happened during the trial and they're they're getting changed and Eric Idle has a very bright gold sequindy thing beneath yeah, beneath his robe <laughs> yeah. Th- that one that one was kind of funny i mean i've seen a cheech and chong bit that was exactly like that except they're they're gay stormtroopers oh that's interesting. Um, <laughs> but so so that kind of made me smile i was like oh there there we go I, that the, that Cheech and Chong sketch was downright python-esque speaking of seeing the influence of pythons on sketches that would come later um that that murder mystery where they're all talking about the trains. I love that. Did that make you think of SNL's Californians? Of course it did. Of course. Oh, who could have done this? Oh, do hurry, Sir Horace. Your train leaves in 28 minutes. If you don't catch the 10.15, you won't catch the 3.45, which is the two. Oh! I'm afraid Sir Horace won't be catching the 10.15, Lady Partridge. Has he been? Yes, after breakfast. <laughs> Lady Partridge, I'm afraid you can cancel his seat reservation. Oh, and it was back to the engine, fourth coach along, so that he could see the gradient signs outside Swanborough. Not anymore, Lady Partridge. The line's been closed. Closed? Not Swanborough. I'm afraid so. All right, nobody move. I'm Inspector Davis of Scotland Yard. My word, you were here quickly, Inspector. Yeah, I got the 8.55 Pullman Express. <laughs> I love the Graham Chapman line where he's the wife of, of the deceased yes. oh, person. Surely he simply shot himself and then hit the gun. How could anyone shoot himself and then hide the gun without first cancelling his reservation? (laughs) That was so good. You know, going back to Throat Wobbler Mangrove, whose whose name is spelled Raymond Luxury Yacht, the guy with the large fake nose, his second appearance is is when he goes on the camping holiday with John Cleese, which is wonderful. Yes. Um, The first appearance, though... I don't love as much, and this is this can uh, be a segue into talking about the the topic of like a lot of really problematic racial shit in this season that was largely absent from the first season. One of the first little hints of that, if I remember the chronology of this, is when you first meet him, and he's got that giant fake nose, and and part of me just kind of went like, oh, my my Jewy sense is tingling. I think they're probably gonna make an anti-Semitic joke, and then they do. It's not as bad as it could have been, but he does accuse, but he accuses them of anti-Semitism. And I was like, well, yep. Even if you're just playing on that ironically, like you've made the connection between giant honking nose 
and Jews, so thanks for that. Yeah. And uh, it's not the worst racial thing that they do in this season, but that one did sting on a personal level. As someone whose only real long-term adult romantic relationship was with someone who once told me that he loved my, quote, big Jew nose or big Jewy nose. Whoa! Yeah. Charming motherfucker, right? That will haunt me forever. Yeah. There, there are other, there's a lot of sort of anti-black racism. And again, I'm sure that it was meant ironically, whatever the fuck that means. And it's unfair, I know, to, you know, judge something against modern standards when it's almost 50 years old. But at the same time, like, for me, the thing that left the worst taste in my mouth was Eric Idle as Uncle Tom, the servant in the Attila the Hun sitcom sketch which honestly i was laughing at up until that point Same. i was like oh, i was this is like i was enjoying the until the hun family sitcom so much i was actually laughing out loud which is but but then yeah that just it was just so unnecessary and so jarring not to mention dude that was a one two three punch because you see someone sneak in in blackface and you go oh, oh no. fuck there it is then they call him uncle tom and then he speaks and he has that over-the-top, like, accent and you mm-hmm. go, okay, so they really Ugh. weren't pulling any punches with that one. Because yeah. it made me think about blackface, obviously. <laughs> like, in the case of an episode of Mad Men, mm-hmm. Roger Sterling is in blackface singing to his wife about my old Kentucky home. Yeah. And it has that protection of, weren't the 60s fucked up? You would never do this in front of all of your friends now. Mm-hmm. And you go, yeah, sure, okay. And then there's a Mitchell and Webb sketch where one of them is wearing like a hijab and you know they they talk about is this still okay to do and the other says context is everything and pulls his hood off over his face and he's got blackface on Mm -hmm. so the the joke is context is everything and then they they shock you like yeah like two times but then it they're making some kind of ends yeah they, they i mean and even if that's a bullshit excuse you were talking about that episode of Daria and the great line yes. of I don't oh, see the don't. Oh, I was definitely going to bring that up again. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really don't think that we, and I'm using the royal we because I've never appeared anywhere in blackface and I don't yeah. intend to. And I know neither of you, but we, I don't care if, if it's we Americans or we as people, yeah. we as white people. We, we as comedians who just have no filter and don't understand these crazy false barriers, grow the fuck up. Yeah. There is no reason for anyone to really appear in blackface ever again. Yes, I had that same thought because I was like, the whole like, oh, it was a different time excuse only gets you so far. We're yeah. not talking about Al Jolson in 1927. We're not even talking about Mickey and Judy in the 40s. We're talking about, this was 1970. And I mean, like, just to give you some perspective... By this point, and I know that this is a different country, but Malcolm X and Martin Luther King had already been assassinated and been dead for several years by this point. Like, the American Civil Rights Movement had happened, and that pretty much killed blackface forever, except for, like, offensive, shitty sorority and fraternity parties or, like, comedians who are making a comment on it. But I don't think that... I mean, it seems like the UK didn't... I haven't done any, like, you know, historical research on what the 60s were like racially over there, but it seems like they didn't have that same sort of moment of reckoning. And I'm not saying that... By no means am I saying that the problem of racism is solved here. Clearly, we are in a a big crisis at the moment. But meanwhile, 
they didn't have any sort of struggle like that over there that made it that was the nail in the coffin for that particularly offensive and hurtful form of entertainment there was even a show I, I found this out when I was doing research on something unrelated uh, many months ago but there was a show called the black and white minstrel show that aired until maybe I want to say 1978 I think I've seen YouTube clips oh Jesus oh I haven't I only just just stumbled upon it through a Wikipedia rabbit hole but like you know what it's also possible it was clips of some other British thing where there happened to be people in blackface it's just like why did you think that that was okay and again I don't want to Monty Python they're they're my idols I love them very much obviously it's very easy to criticize things with the modern lens of political correctness but I was thinking about this last night because that was the last or one of the last episodes that I watched before going to bed and then I watched the rest of this today and that was you know never go to bed angry that was maybe not the best choice on my part but I was thinking about how you know every piece of art or entertainment or culture or media you have four different ways that you can address the big systemic societal problems of racism, sexism, you know, raging capitalism, all of the big problems that that are just sort of part of our world. So if you think about those things, the culture that we live in as like a river that's flowing in one direction, then the best and most progressive thing that you can do is to swim against the current and to be specifically anti-racist, anti-sexist. I think that If we're talking about the shows that we talked about during season one of this podcast, I think that by virtue of having an all-female cast and a female writer, I think that Ab Fab and also Father Ted in the Rockahula Ted and Are You Right There, Father Ted episodes come the closest to being that, where they specifically comment against that. And then the next best thing that you can do is to just stand still in the stream and not go with the flow of whatever are the racist, sexist attitudes of your current time. I think that probably the young ones did that. And then, you know, the the third category is to just go with the flow and to be just as sexist and shitty. And that's, I think, you know, season one of Monty Python, as far as the treatment of women as objects, it's like, yes, that was a different time. I still would expect better and hope for more. But there are a lot of shows that, you know, it's they're a product of the culture that we live in. And it's not surprising that they just reinforce it. And then there's the worst category, which is to swim even further down Uh, into the current and to like aggressively and really hatefully push those stereotypes and those destructive agendas like you know white boys pushing buttons to get a reaction yeah or to protect their privilege and that really leaves a sour taste in my mouth and this was this was for me where Monty Python crossed over from the third category into the fourth category not the whole time just for those few little moments, there's there's a couple, I mean, like, they use the word darky at some point, and I'm sure that it's meant to be like, oh, we're commenting on racism, but again, I'm not seeing the don't enough. You know, I was thinking of that sketch, too, when Terry Jones is, is an old mm-hmm, racist mm-hmm. lady and keeps saying, I don't like darkies, but then I think it's Michael... I, it's, I it's John Cleese Palin. is the host. John Cleese, you know, and, and instead says, of being like, oh, ma'am, he, he says, well, who who doesn't? And I thought, that's where I don't see the don't. I, we, you know, we talked about this in Faulty Towers with the major. Yeah. The joke has to fall on the person who is perpetuating the racism or the sexism in order for the joke to make sense. Yeah. And when you have something like Flying Circus, the question of does this joke make sense does not always matter yeah but the Attila the Hun sketch if we're looking at it just purely from a comedic standpoint of all the places you're gonna just randomly have somebody in blackface being named Uncle Tom you ruined a really great sketch that was already pretty out of the box and surprising yeah oh my god it was it started off with such promise it was so funny it didn't up the ante and for for me as a modern viewer 
blackface isn't going to up the ante in anything. Like, I, I want to no. make that perfectly clear, but it's like, I don't, I wish I knew their justification for that one. I really do. Thinking about the topic of censorship, that's a pretty interesting one because basically for season one, they were not really plagued by the censors. They kind of had carte blanche to do whatever, but it wasn't until the show started to gain more popularity and become more of a big thing that they started to have those arguments. And it's just so funny to me, like the things that the censors chose to censor. Because like, you know, you've got so many tits, so very, very many women just like being objectified, both both real and cartoons. And, and you know, obviously all of the racist stuff is like blah, a whole other category of just horrible despair. But you know, with the animation with the prince who had the black spot? Uh-huh. Did you notice that there's the part where it says that he, the prince died of, and it says gangrene. Gangrene. That was originally supposed to be cancer, and they censored cancer. <laughs> they didn't censor the blackface. They didn't censor the nude women. They didn't censor all of this stuff about torturing animals and all of this ridiculous violence. They didn't censor the giant Junos, but they censored cancer. Like, oh, I'm going to go out and get cancer now, or I might be offended because someone I know has cancer. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's the single dumbest case of censorship I think I've ever heard of in my life. Same, because there's so many stories like that where, you know, in the case of the young ones, they wanted to censor that part where Vivian is obviously fucking the ground. Yeah. And they all went, wait, when is Vivian fucking the ground? And it's when he's doing press-ups. Yes. But he's, he's, he's thrusting. It's like, even if you wanted to put it that way that he's fucking the ground, it's not like Vivian actually got naked and like got all up on the ground and made it really gross. It's still very playful and childish and stupid. Yeah, there's a plausible deniability to the sexual content. <laughs> Absolutely. Cancer? I know. Some other instances of hilarious censorship were, um, this isn't in the season that we're talking about yet, but the summarized Proust competition. That was good. Yeah, where they, they say... Oh, what are your hobbies outside summarizing? Well, uh, strangling animals, golf, and masturbation. <laughs> they wanted to censor the word masturbation. Okay. I think in order to be a censor, you sort of have to have, like, a really filthy mind because you see, you know, d disgusting sex things in everything, even when they're not really there. And I think it was maybe... I'm thinking about our theater teacher. Oh, yes, no, that's, that's exactly the... That's exactly the story that I was going to hope you were going to tell. So, so yeah, just, just to set that up. Like, one of the people in the documentary, maybe it was Terry Gilliam, was saying, you know, we were all just sort of innocents. It was, like, the, the censors were the ones who were really, like, reading things into it. Like, there's a sketch where they're, like, talking about wine and it turns out that it's all piss but there's one that had like a slightly rosé tint and the the censors thought that oh that must mean that it's got menstrual blood in it and that's like not okay but yes tell tell the story about about our high school our teacher. theater teacher well okay so i was a year behind kaylee in high school and it was a drama club tradition at the end of every year we'd have this big just kind of ceremony drama club banquet people would hand out funny awards make speeches you know and one of the traditions was that the junior class would write a sketch that the senior class had to perform and you would hand out the scripts that night essentially live on the stage and then each person would be acting as themselves and we'd be lampooning them and bringing up inside jokes and making references to performances in the plays. So um, Kaylee was dating a, a boy from a different uh, school <laughs> and somebody fell in love with somebody else in the sketch and we gave Kaylee the line of like, that person pales in comparison to my Oak Park stallion. <laughs> was it stallion? It was stallion. It was stallion. Okay, my Oak Park stallion. <laughs> so 
our teacher sits down with us. He had copious notes on what was inappropriate about this show. Like, mm. I'm, I kind of wish I, I, I wonder if I have that original copy somewhere because I would love to see all of the bizarre ass shit that, oh, that our teacher sure. came up with. My Oak Park Stallion, Oak Park being the name of the high school, my Oak Park Stallion. But I said stud because our, our teacher said, yeah, don't say stallion or stud because we don't want to imagine this sweet, innocent young girl with a horse. <laughs> Which, if you think about it, means that my high school drama teacher did, however briefly, picture his 17-year-old student fucking a horse. Thanks for that image, And um, And you're welcome, audience. I don't, I mean, I know I didn't laugh in his face, but I, my friend and I looked at each other and we were like, well, of course not. What? Are you? Yeah, yeah. I just remember. Yeah, we just don't want this image of this sweet little girl and a horse. And, and like, a horse. That would never that would never cross any of our minds as teenagers. No. And we had someone sing like a little parody riff of whatever Lola wants. And he was like, that, that's from Damn Yankees. And it's sung by a woman who's the devil. And we don't want references to the devil. And it was like, <laughs> it's also a boy singing to another boy. It's like, we, we imply in the script, like, this is going to be super gay. And he's going to be wearing a feather boa. And it's just like, no. Not the devil. <laughs> Stop the program. Stop it. He he was like a less fun Graham Chapman. Speaking of Graham Chapman, during the, the penguin scene, <laughs> is that when Graham Chapman says intercourse the penguin? Yes. I mean, what else? Okay. So instead, <laughs> right. So instead of like, screw the penguin, he says intercourse the penguin. The penguin. <laughs> so when I, when I was in middle school, Kaylee, I would write a lot of screenplays. Tell me they were all erotic. Well... <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. Go on. They weren't erotic, but I was always this like wise talking, cool beyond her years, 13 year old girl or 12 year old girl. But in one of them, like Keanu Reeves moved in next door and we became best friends. (laughs) (laughs) And then in another one, like my parents were leaving for an entire week. And then my best friend, Adam Sandler, and I fell in love. (sighs) And it it was going to end with us like standing like on a hill and we were going to kiss and come on over by Christina Aguilera was going to come on. And I thought that was the most cinematic, like, wonderful thing. Oh, man. These are dated AF other... and I love it. Oh, yeah. But in this other humiliating screenplay that I'm sharing with you, there was a scene where, like, smooth talking stuff, like, it was so stupid. It was like I was at a table full of friends and I like order food for all of them. And I'm like speaking like a cool lingo with the waitress about like, yeah, what's up? You know, I want that shit on the side. Like, I don't know. Sure, like- I, I, it was weird. But there was a moment where like a stupid boy said something that an old lady overheard and didn't like. And she yelled at him to go masturbate. <laughs> because I had just recently learned that masturbating was to have sex with yourself and I thought that was just like a bad disgusting thing so I thought that go masturbate meant like literally translated to go fuck yourself I mean it should it because like saying go fuck yourself is really is like saying oh like have a have a pleasant experience that's just for you anyway something that's so great about this show is that these are all you know Oxbridge fellows they're they're all very very smart very educated and you can tell that their very high class education informs their comedy but not in such a way that makes it inaccessible to the rest of us a perfect example is the semaphore version of wuthering heights (laughs) the last time that i saw that i had never read wuthering heights now 
I have, technically, though that was many years ago and I've completely forgotten everything except that there are characters named Catherine and Heathcliff and there are Moors and that's basically all I remember. But again, even just with that little tiny bit of knowledge, you can still appreciate the ridiculousness of the semaphore version. And that's what's so fun is that like, this is a comedy that allows you to feel smart. It doesn't exclude you from the joke just because you're not as brilliant as these these highly educated gentlemen. They're not like rubbing their specific knowledge in your face. It's all very accessible with sort of like a nod to all of these really sophisticated references. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the summarized Proust competition. Like it, you just you just need the tiniest, you need to just know like the Cliff's Notes version of what these things are. I'm kind of glad you brought that up because I was watching and, you know, there's the Wuthering Heights, there's that panel show with all of the famous communist revolutionaries <laughs> that turns out just to be trivia. And that gets gay too. It, oh yeah. And then there is the Terry Jones striptease where he's talking about economics uh-huh. And, and it's a, it's a monologue that I myself probably couldn't write. My eyes glazed over. I'm like, whoa, this is policy stuff. I can't even. But I mean, for, for as much as there is that, I was wondering with all of the silliness, I mean, there are just as many, if not more, sketches that are just about hedgehogs and sheep and drunk Australians. Oh, yeah. And, you know, people fall out of windows. And I'm trying to decide if if the brilliance is mostly how intellectual these guys are or if it's that they just brought childish humor to the adult world in like a completely unashamed and unafraid way because i thought about when we were trying to think of an american equivalent of the young ones for example right right and, they were all and we could shows. only think of cartoons or really anarchic puppet shows that we used to watch (laughs) when we were kids i'll put it this way we found flying circus funny when we were children when we were uh, at least when i was too young to really remember what was happening in my life in like a linear way Mm -hmm. i connected to it i mean kids love random shit and i'm not trying to bring the show down a peg but i'm wondering if that's part of what makes it so good is that when you're a kid your humor is really limitless and you love random things and you laugh at the word hedgehog <laughs> and these are grown men doing the same thing yeah and I'm wondering if that in itself is a lot of what makes it really special oh yeah well it's such a potent blend of high and low comedy it's such a delightful cornucopia that you really don't know it's like a box of chocolates right. with a crunchy frog in it. You don't know what you're going to get. Totally. <laughs> it has such staying power, I think, because it's like a lot of the things that we've talked about. It can be enjoyed by people of all ages. Right. But but I, I do love that they obviously didn't set out to make this show accessible to very young children. Yeah. Didn't stop us from loving it, though. <laughs> no. Anyway, going back to the Australians, though, mm-hmm. that was a pretty grim depiction of the Australian male, <laughs> just homophobic, pounding beer, drinking raw meat, or not drinking raw meat, eating raw <laughs> meat. It's a weird stereotype. Pounding beer, eating raw meat, and uh, and just repeating no poofters. Yeah. I wonder how they feel about that one in Australia. Yeah, I don't know. I like it when they play Americans. A sketch that we haven't talked about from this season yet is Scott of the Antarctic. We, we mentioned the whole, like, oh, Carol Cleveland is, like, practically fully naked. And, yeah. But there's also a lot of really fucking hilarious stuff in that. I love John Cleese as the increasingly drunk Scottish 
director who's just such a pushover and will say yes to anything that anybody says and he's like falling down drunk by the end of it great it's it's fantastic and um the diva stars and everything really funny and then like i cackled at the image of that there's the stock footage of the lion leaping at it first of all they they have to change it to scott of the sahara yes because the star insists that fighting a lion is key to his contract so they have a shot of the lion leaping at him and then it's he's michael palin is very clearly wrestling a stuffed lion but then it also sometimes a, a man in a lion suit and i just love that so much that episode's also interesting because isn't it not until halfway through the episode that they give us the opening credits oh yeah this is where they get even more experimental in form i want to say because because they, in the in the first season, it's pretty regular. The first thing is Michael Palin as the It's Man. Sometimes it'll be just a couple seconds. Sometimes it'll be a minute of him, you know, facing a lot of bodily harm in order to run up to the camera and say It's. Yeah. But here they experiment with the placement. There's lots of announcements from the BBC. Oh, God, there's so many funny announcements in this. And the Gumbies really make a lot of fantastic appearances in this season. Yeah, I think I liked the bouquet arrangement maybe the most. Oh, that's that's so good. <laughs> First, take a bunch of flowers. Pretty begonias, irises, freesias, and climantisums. Then, arrange them nicely in a vase. I also like when they're all like announcing the sketches in unison and all of the the apologies and the corrections. We had talked about like the the letters in season one as being a sort of connective thread. But in this one, there's a lot of the, you know, man on the street interviews that are so funny. And uh, and then there's also apologies. You know, the BBC would like to apologize for blah, blah, blah. And then there's that one episode where different experts keep coming in and offering these little quibbling bits of like, well, actually, that was not correct. Like the... Actually, it takes six years to become a certified pilot, not two years. And uh... Oh, the pilot one was great. The flying lessons. <laughs> yes, the flying lessons. That's great. <laughs> there's always a lot of breaking the fourth wall in this, in this show, but there's the one really meta one where I think it's Eric is coming into a chemist that is run by Michael, and Michael is like, oh, I have to go to the basement. And then there's an awkward pause where Eric addresses the camera and becomes really self-conscious and says, oh, sorry, he's not actually... Going, he's just you know running off the camera and and he'll be right back and it's it's very it's very funny I didn't explain that well but yeah no you didn't and <laughs> none taken go on that was supposed to be like no you didn't really do a bad di- oh god I'm sorry <laughs> no 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 don't apologize that was perfect I'm keeping it in. You did, though. You just explained it as well as I followed it. How about that? Okay, well, you followed it because you've seen it within the last 24 hours, but other people might not have, so I'm trying to be a little more articulate on behalf of our less uh, Python-informed listeners. Oh, God. Well, okay. (laughs) Well, Well, now... Now I just... No, 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 no. Keep talking. That was really funny. No, he starts talking to the camera, but unlike in previous moments from that very episode or or different episodes where people address the camera, Eric Idle's really nervous about it and he's explaining, you know, oh, sometimes people have to walk away and uh, they come back though. Ha ha. Oh, Mm -hmm. it's live TV. And he's he's really awkward about it. And it reminded Mm me of Garth in Wayne's World, how in Wayne's World, they can both address the camera. 
Uh-huh. And Wayne explicitly says only me and Garth get to talk to the camera. But Wayne is completely comfortable with it. And Garth is kind of terrified of it. And so it was kind of the first time that we saw them in that meta world where you mm-hmm. can address the camera, but being uncomfortable with it. So it was something a little bit, a little bit like, like that we hadn't seen before. It, it was just kind of a fresh way for them to, to do their meta thing. But it yeah. was, it was a little bit. See, now I've done a terrible job of explaining my point. <laughs> yes, you have. No, <laughs> uh, no, I think that, yeah, we, we've talked about how in the first season, they definitely would frequently break the fourth wall and say, well, this sketch isn't working. And then they, they acknowledge the falseness of this a lot. In this season, though, they really take that to the next level to the point where they'll hold up a little sort of like Wiley Coyote-esque sign that says joke, or there will see something flashing across the screen that says satire. I mean, they sure could have used that graphic when Uncle Tom appeared. Uh, <laughs> could they have, though? Would that have been appropriate? Who knows? But yeah, they just really take that whole convention to the next level in this. I'm very curious to see what's different in the next seasons curious to see where it's all going i know it's not going anywhere (laughs) (laughs) it's going it's going everywhere and nowhere at the same time it's Mm. going in a delightful loopy circle that'll take us on a fun stream of consciousness adventure full of lots of fun giggles along the way i'm sure do you completely disagree with me that terry jones is handsome no we we talked about this in the first episode that, that like i i felt the same way but like my my raging lady boner is not as massive as yours i would say it's like i wouldn't it's a semi. say i have a massive <laughs> raging lady boner for terry jones i was discussing my my crushes of 2018 with my friend during a 4th of July celebration. And I listed Billy Bob Thornton. (laughs) All right. Mark Marin. Okay. And Mr. Bean. Wait, wait, wait. Mr. Bean, not even Rowan Atkinson? Well, I said Mr. Bean because I feel like that stateside is is a more recognizable name for people than Rowan Atkinson. But of course I meant... But that's a very different thing to say. Oh, I know. Look, I knew what I meant. <laughs> so no, T- Terry Jones is not quite among that that crowd of of honeys. <laughs> oh God, for me this year has been all about rediscovering Michael Palin and Rick Mayall. Those are my those are my two main men. Oh yeah, you've been on an awesome Rick Mayall kick. Mm-hmm. You uh, have you watched Rock Hard Ed? No, because he's not in it. <laughs> You did well, send that to me, and I watched, like, a minute, and I was like, oh, God, oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Very similar to how I wouldn't want to see Father Dougal porn, because I know that it wouldn't actually star Ardell O'Hanlon. But, like, if you got an actor who even just tried to do an impression, like, that's the thing. Rock Hard Ed is such an abomination. This is so irrelevant. We should probably <laughs> cut this, but I feel like I need to say my piece about this. It's an abomination because the guy's not even trying to be British and she's not even trying to look like Phoebe Cates. Like, she's blonde and he's American and there's no attempt at, like, you couldn't have found a porn actor who's, like, a little bit ambitious to do a Rick Mayall impression. Like, I could have been a better rock hard ad, goddammit. (laughs) I accept my own challenge. (laughs) Oh my god, wait, can I... (laughs) Can I tell... The thing that your mom said. Please tell that one. 
so <laughs> you you should tell it because it's your story before any of our, our of our shows had officially aired i did want to share one of them just with my mom because she'd been asking about it and I, I played her the young ones episode because it was my favorite and it was mother's day and it was mother's day and yeah we got to the part toward the beginning of of the episode where kaylee and i are discussing how there isn't a good young ones porn out there or good one there isn't a single young ones porn out there <laughs> and Kaylee says something like we god well they're all blending together in my head but the point is my mother looked at me and said you should make one and I I smiled and nodded but her her eyes remained very intense and uh penetrating and she just kept nodding and, and looking at me and nodding and I, I I finally had to go okay and like pat her hand to like assure her <laughs> Yes, mother, I, I will make a porn. No problem. <laughs> That's like the premise of a terrible movie. Like you made a promise to your mother. In the movie, she would like, in, in real life, she's not dying. But in the movie, it would be like, you made a promise to your mother on her deathbed that you would make the great American porno. And then you have to do it. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That could work. Like if the dying mom is a porn actress who had to put up with a lot of shit and never got a chance to have a real role. This could be a movie. <laughs> There's worse movies. Oh my god! So there you make a porn to movies. to avenge all of the porn actresses of the seventies? <laughs> Why not? Oh uh, it could be called Motherfucker. No, that's terrible. Ooh. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Join us next week for the final chapter of our flying circus adventure. Uh, t- what should we? What should we say? Nobody oh. expects the Spanish Inquisition. No, that's stupid. Um, I'm gonna go masturbate. <laughs> oh my god! And have some rosé. <laughs> oh lord! Oh my dear! If we come up with a better closing line, we're gonna always... a better closing line than I'm gonna go masturbate and have some rosé. <laughs> I don't I think, think there that, is. I think fair. that we should pre-record that and just end all future episodes with that. <laughs> Devoid of context. That's our new sign-off. That's our stay sexy, don't get murdered. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Can I go masturbate and <laughs> 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 <laughs>